and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we've heard the saying so often that it, um, it almost sounds trite, but it's entirely true. And that is that life is a journey. I mean, this has got to be one of the most common metaphors we hear about our life, but there's a reason for that. It's entirely true. In this life, we're pilgrims, we're travelers, we're on the road, we're wayfarers. That's true for all of us, though some of us approach this journey a little differently than others, don't we? So some of us, some of you maybe, have a very targeted and specific plan for your journey, for your road, all right? Some of you, some of us, are committed to planning it out as far as humanly possible. So these are the folks that have a five-year and a 10-year and a 20-year plan. They know where they want to be, where they want to live. We usually call them doctors, but they sometimes go by other names, okay? And then there's the rest of us. Then there's the rest of us. I was a philosophy major in college, which should already tip you off that I don't have a long-term plan, okay? If you go into college to study philosophy, you have no plan. Um, And, uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard what all philosophy majors say to biology majors after they've graduated. Do you guys know this? Would you like fries with that? Right, philosophy does not give you much of a long-term job prospect trajectory, Senior year, I was in this capstone class, so it was me and the other 20 philosophy majors who graduated with me that year from the University of Missouri, and one day the professor asked us what we're all going to do next, and, and we were going around the room sharing, and every single other person in that room 
had, was sharing what they're going to do, and they had all majored in philosophy and majored in something practical, like pre-law, pre-med, even math. Is I was turns out I was the only one who didn't get the memo, and I had just majored in philosophy, and I was just looking around, saying like. I have no idea. I, like, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. So I, w- I moved to Kenya for a year. That seemed like a reasonable <laughs> next step. Um, some people want to plan the journey, want to see down the road as far as they can and get it dialed. Some of us are just sort of taking it as it, as it comes. Which one are you? How do you approach your journey in life, your road? Are you sort of winging it, or are you a planner? Do you work hard to chart your course, or do you pretty much take it as it comes? Either way, we're all on the road, right? We can't see around all the turns. We don't know what comes next, but we're on a journey, and we're on a pilgrimage. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark in a sermon series, and we come to Mark 10 today. And we've encountered these before, but I just wanted to highlight it. Um, In the first verse that we read, there's these little geographical markers that our author, Mark, puts in the story, and they're not here by accident. So we read in verse 32, they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. He actually uses these geographical markers to structure his his whole biography of Jesus' life. This middle section, chapters 8 through 10, they're the journeying section. This is Jesus on the road. Jesus on his journey, and along the way, his disciples are following him, and this is a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus down the road on our journey as well. Jesus, like us, he's on a journey. He's slightly ahead of his people, and we're trying to follow him. Does he have a plan? Where's he headed? Or is he kind of winging it? as he goes as well. And what does it mean to walk along the path, this road, journeying with Jesus? What's the way of Jesus? These are the questions I want to try to address this morning from our passage. Just, we'll just use two of them as an outline. Where, where's Jesus going? What, what's his life's journey about? He's on the road going somewhere. Where's he going? Uh, and then second, what does it mean for us to journey with him there? All right, so that's where we're heading. Let's pray real quick before we jump in. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you bless our time in your word. There's riches here of your grace and your love. We pray that we see it, we trust it, we believe it, and we live our lives according to your love. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, during this travel section in Mark, Jesus has actually told his disciples exactly where he's going to go, and he's already done it twice. So if this sounds familiar, it should. This is the third time that Jesus has said this exact same thing to his followers. All right, so picking up in verse 32. They were on the road, as we said, going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. This is kind of a side note, but it's an interesting reaction that the two things that they, uh, that characterized following Jesus for them was amazement and fear. I wonder why that is. I also wonder what two words you might choose to characterize your journey following Jesus. Uh, Anyway, during the journey, Jesus takes the 12 aside, his closest followers, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33 saying, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. The son of man, the way that he refers to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will 
mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, he has already told his disciples the broad outline of this, but this third prophecy, this third prediction of his coming death is by far the most detailed, and he offers the most explanation about where he is heading on his road. We learn where this is going to happen in Jerusalem, the center of power and culture and politics and wealth in the whole region. We learn more about what's going to happen when he's there. He'll be condemned to death. That's actually a technical legal term that has to do with being executed by the government itself. So we see this collusion here between the religious leaders of the day and the government of the day, and they're going to formally condemn and execute Jesus as a criminal. We learn details about what that trial and suffering will be like. People will mock him, spit on him, flog him. When we get to this in Mark 15, we're going to see that each one of these predictions to the letter is fulfilled in his journey to the cross. But maybe most importantly of all, we learn why Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and he will not be deterred from his path in life. We learn why his road, his journey, has to lead him here. Mark 10.45 is one of the most important verses in the Gospels. What this verse does is it provides a clear, wide window into what the death of Jesus means, the very heart of Christianity. I mean, if you've been around the church at all, even if you haven't, you probably know that Jesus' death stands at the center of Christianity, okay? Like, this is a religion revolving around the state-sponsored execution of a man who didn't deserve it, right? I mean, that's, that's offensive, that's violent, that's bloody. But if you've been around the church at all, you know that this is the thing that we look to for our hope and for our joy. Um, this is God's journey. This is why he came. This is why Jesus came to earth. He left heaven to take this road for this reason, okay? I mean, this was not, he's not winging it here. He's not taking a philosophy class and then doesn't know what to do after he graduates. Okay, Jesus came for a reason. This was plan A, and plan A was to come and live and be killed, by the Roman government, okay? And then to rise again. This stands at the center of our religion. But why? Have you ever thought about this? Like, we kind of know that. If you've been around church for a long time, you know that. But could you explain to somebody why Jesus' death matters so much to our lives today? I mean, why is this so important? How does his execution, the execution of a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago, have anything to do with us sitting in this room in 2018? Mark 10.45 is a key part of our answer. Let me read it for us. Even the Son of Man, again, Jesus' most common way to refer to himself in the Gospels. It comes from Daniel 7. We're not going to look at that. But the Son of Man came to be served, or I'm, came to, <laughs> let me get this right. <laughs> There's a few things you got to get right. This is one of them. All right. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason that Jesus' death and resurrection stand at the heart of Christianity, the reason his death in 30 AD applies in 2018, is because his death, as he tells us here, 
serves as a cosmic, global, spiritual ransom for the many, many people throughout history who are going to look to him in faith. A ransom. A ransom in that culture and in this culture. At the heart of a ransom is the idea of an exchange, right? A trade. In the language of the day, a ransom referred to the bail that you pay to get a prisoner of war or a slave freed from their slavery. Released from jail, it was purchase money to free someone from bondage, to buy their freedom. The result of Jesus' ransom is our redemption. It's our freedom, all right? So Jesus, the, the reason this matters, the reason this applies to us is because Jesus intervenes on behalf of his people as their king. When he goes to the cross, he doesn't just die. He actually fights the battles that we can't fight on our own. He's taking on the powers of sin and Satan and the world that we're not strong enough to take on ourselves. He's our hero. He's the one who can succeed where we can't, who can bear what we can't. He's our victor. He's our king. He achieves the thing for us that we most need, but we can't do on our own. He redeems us from our spiritual slavery. He wins for us, okay? A ransom brings freedom. But how do ransoms work? Ransoms work because they cost something, all right? So Jesus is telling us that the end result will be redemptive for us. It'll be freedom for us. But the cost to buy that freedom is his own death on our behalf, his own substitutionary death. If we pick up our story again, in verse 35, we get some insight into what that means. Right after Jesus tells his disciples why he's on the road to this city to die, to, be, um, to die in their place, James and John, okay, and these two guys, these two guys are a riot. Um, they're, they're called the sons of thunder elsewhere in the Gospels, these brothers, probably because of their blustering, chaotic, hot-headed reactions just like this one. Okay, so Jesus tells them he's about to go and die. The next words out of their mouth are what? Teacher, we want you to do something, whatever we ask. Okay? So pro tip, if someone tells you that they're about to die, that's not the next thing you say to them. Okay? It's, it's beyond insensitive. It's like their heads are made of concrete. They're asking for their inheritance early, right after they have been told that, that, they're, that their father's going to die, their friend's going to die in a matter of days. But Jesus, in all his patience, says, all right, buddies, what is it exactly you'd like me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. In other words, we want access to your power. We want your glory to rub off on us. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized? And again, in all their misplaced confidence, they say, well, yeah, I mean, we've been with you, right, for at least two and a half years now. Let's get, we're good. We can do what you do. And he says, uh, I drink, you actually will drink. And that baptism with which I'm baptized, you actually will be baptized. In other words, the, the truth about my power will be revealed to you shortly. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. What is this cup and this baptism that Jesus is talking about here. I mean, this seems pretty random. The most common way that the cup uh, imagery 
is referenced in the Old Testament, is used throughout the Bible, is to talk about how God deals with the evil and the wickedness and the brokenness of his creation. Okay, how God deals with evil. We've mentioned this before, but God is so loving that he will not and he cannot stand by when something threatens to destroy what he loves, right? He will go after the thing and deal with a thing that threatens to destroy what he loves. And God's response to evil and injustice and sin, the stuff, that the ickiness that we all know about in the world, his response to that is to take it down, okay? He will remove the threat of the thing that threatens to destroy what he loves. And the cup is the sign in the Old Testament that talks about his righteous judgment against evil. Here's the problem. The problem, our problem, is that we're actually the problem. Uh, That evil and that sin and that wickedness is not just an ambiguous force working somewhere out there in the world, you know, like some kind of unseen thing that wreaks destruction and uh, creates the ugliness that we read about in the newspaper all the time. Um, We're the problem. We are it. We perpetuate the selfishness and the greed and the lies and the hurt. So here's God's dilemma. Do you see it? In some ways, the whole Old Testament is setting up this dilemma. God's dilemma of our relationship with him is this. We are, at the very same time, the ones that he loves with a ferocious, unending, complete, and eternal love. Okay, it's, it's us that he has in mind that he loves so much that he wants us to protect us from the evil in the world, and we're also the ones perpetuating the evil in the world. That's a problem, okay? God's got a problem on his hands. I mean, we have a bigger problem on his hand, on, on our hands, but, but that's the dilemma of God's relationship with us. What does he do with us? How does he love us and address the sin in us at the same time? He sends a ransom, right? He sends another in our place to drink the cup and be overwhelmed with the baptism of judgment that we deserve. It's the great exchange of the gospel, Jesus pays for the consequences of our sin and rebellion by taking our place under the cup and the baptism that we actually deserve. He ransoms us with his own life. I assume that you guys have seen the miniseries Planet Earth um, because you are alive in 2018. Okay, If you haven't seen these things, like cancel your plans for the afternoon and go home and watch them because they're amazing. This is some of the best footage ever recorded of uh, God's creation and, and our natural world. Okay, in the original series, not the new one that just came out where all the snakes are chasing the lizards and my palms were sweating for like an hour and I'm never going to watch it again, not that one, but the old one, there's a, there's a jungle episode In one of the scenes, um, they got footage of this colony of ants that live deep in the jungle, okay? And this colony of ants gets attacked by a fungus. Now, this is going to get gross for just a second, but it's pretty awesome, so hang with me. So the spores from this fungus will will land on the ants, okay? And they'll kind of burrow into the body of the ant. But, um, But it doesn't kill the ant. It infects the ant's brain. 
and it actually sends the ant climbing up into a tree as high as it can go and then paralyzes the ant, okay? So it's like this, this yeah, it's wild. And um, then, then it paralyzes it, and then this mushroom kind of spike thing starts growing out of the ant's head, okay? Um, yeah, just hang with me. I told you it's going to be gross, but it's totally awesome. And then when the wind blows, that mushroom turns into millions and millions of more spores that go and land on more ants, and it happens all over again, okay? So if one ant in this colony gets infected with this fungus called the cordycept, you know, got me, um, what it does is it threatens the entire community of the ants. That infection basically hovers over the whole community like a sentence of death, okay? Like, like that whole community sits under a reign of death, and when that wind blows, more and more fungus is going to infect more and more ants, and it will spread, and the end is inevitable. Okay, gross, you know, fascinating, and very devious by this fungus. I don't know how, you know, it does all that. But here's the truly fascinating thing. When the colony of ants realizes that this is happening, when they see one get infected and they see that mushroom thing start to grow out of its head, what they do is they send a healthy ant from their community to go and retrieve the infected ant and carry it off into the, into the wilderness, into the jungle, so that it cannot infect any more of the community. Okay? I'm not like Jesus built into his creation a ransom, a sacrifice. A, what happens is a personal, uh, a, uh, a healthy living ant will carry away the disease from the community, but in doing so, that ant goes on to die himself, right? He's infected by the disease, and he lays down his life for the community. I mean, this is, this is wild. Jesus built into his creation. Okay, it's gross, but Jesus built into his creation a ransom, a sacrifice, the healthy for the unhealthy, the living for those who live under the threat of death. Jesus ransoms our life from the natural consequences of the sin that we all, that disease of sin that we all carry in our hearts, and he carries it away so that we as a community don't die, but live with him forever. This is Jesus' road. This is the big why of his life. This is the reason he left heaven to live among us. It's his redemptive substitutionary death that was his intention from before the beginning of the world. This is where he's always been headed on his journey. And before moving on to our second question for the morning, let me just point out that this is the most countercultural way to use power that has ever been experienced. Jesus used his authority as the prince of heaven. He used his position as king over all things, the wealth of God himself, not to get us to serve him more and to, uh, and, and to, to you know, revolve around um, him for his glory, but to serve and love us at great cost to himself. He poured his resources to love rebels that had sinned against him directly, repeatedly, and drastically. I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that? Such a countercultural use of power to use his wealth and his resources to pour out against four, sorry, his natural enemies. It's unprecedented. It's actually unfathomable. Jesus reigns by ransoming his life for others. His most glorious moment was a shameful death on behalf of 
others, for us. And so when it comes to our second question this morning, what does it look like for us to be on the way with Jesus? What does a journey with him through life look like? I mean, the question almost answers itself. But Jesus directs us. Verse 42. Jesus called them to him. Actually, that word is more like summoned. When Mark uses it, he's, he's saying what comes next is a key teaching from Jesus. He said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Jesus here is explaining how his kingdom works, the economics of the kingdom of God. It's a teaching about power and authority and leadership. It's a, it's a story, it's a teaching about how to live in his world. Now, all of us, to some extent, are endowed with a certain amount of power, aren't we? We all have agency in this world. But to be honest, if you are in America today, you are among the top 5% of the wealthiest humans alive on this planet, right? And if you are especially a white American, we have um, enjoyed, I should, I should say, we've received the kind of privilege and access that humans throughout history have almost never experienced. The amount of power that we have and privilege that we have to invest, that the resources that we have been given to invest Our power and privilege is rare among human history. Jesus is asking us how we're going to use it, how we're going to invest that power. He's saying the one way that the the way the world uses its power is it lords it over others. This is default mode. We we use our power to um, towards our own comfort, for our own families, for our own future, our own dreams, our ambitions, like little lords. We invest our resources mainly in ourselves. This is default mode. But there's a different kind of leadership in Jesus' kingdom. In his world, on his path, following after him, in the kingdom of Jesus, he says the powerful, those with access, those with wealth, those with privilege, are the first to serve, not the first to be served. The leaders are those who pay the highest cost, not the lowest. Those with access use it to get others in first and step into the end of the line and go in last. Those with wealth pour it into people and causes that don't directly benefit them but are a great gift to others. Henry Nouwen is a Catholic priest and an author, and he has called this downward mobility. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. He wrote it this way. The society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus, he says, is radically different. It's not the way of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It's going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, choosing the last place. This is the way of Jesus. Why is it worth choosing? Because it's the way to the kingdom, it's the way Jesus took, and it's the way that brings everlasting life. Now, now I had the street cred to say something like that, because he actually spent the closing years of his career, he was um, a tenured professor at Harvard, and he gave up 
the access, the prestige, the money, the networking, and the power that comes with that to go and serve a community of handicapped folks at a ministry called La Arch in uh, Canada. See, he laid down that power for the sake of those that our society considers unimportant and easily dismissed. What might downward mobility look like in your life, in our lives as a church? What could it look like for us to to journey along this same path with Jesus, not looking to be served first, but to serve those around us with our resources and with our lives? Um, I mean, helping children transition out of an orphanage in Haiti comes to mind. Sorry, Beth, but you're not going to get rich doing this. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but... Lives will be transformed. JP can testify, right? What about closer to home? What does it look like for us to to move downward for the sake of the gospel? How about simple acts of of hospitality and just having people over to your home, right? Like, it costs you something. You got to clean the place. You got to buy the food. It can be uncomfortable. You don't always look great. Uh, because your kids are often uh, screaming kind of chaotic, snotty mess, right? Um, The impression is not always good on you. But um, if we do this, not to show off our home and our cooking, but to invest in the people that we invite over, if we invest one of our most valuable resources in this hurried valley, which is time, into other people who are lonely and who need community, need the gift of community that we've been given as a church, that's downward mobility. It's simple, but that regular habit, what if this church became known as the church that just invites people over for them without any expectation in return? What if that was our reputation? If you're a junior high or high school student, downward mobility is simple. It's not easy, okay, but it's simple. The social ladder at a school might as well be posted on the wall, right? Everybody knows who's who. Everybody knows who's in the group. And um, you guys know who's cool and hip, even though you don't use those words anymore. Um, I would challenge you to look down instead of up, right? I would challenge you um, to move towards the people that other people tend to move away from. If you're a busy, wiped-out mom with small kids... You already know downward mobility in your bones, okay? Uh, You look down at your little people all the time. You literally go down to pick up their toys and clean up their mess off the floor hourly, if not every 10 minutes. You know you're not getting paid back for any of this. Perseverance in that calling, in that vocation, with joy and hope and prayer, it's a daily reminder of the way of Jesus, the, the way that his kingdom Works. There's a million more every day all around us. Greatness, Jesus says, comes from making others great. Upwards in his kingdom is living below everyone around us. But here's the thing. I think most people in this world would agree with that, would agree with the way of Jesus. Okay, we, we want our lives to be about more than ourselves. We want to serve and love others. We want to invest in others. That, that's attractive to us. Even if we um, don't believe everything that Jesus said or did in the Bible, this way is attractive. But there's a gap, isn't there? We want to live this way, but we can't live this way. Where do the resources for this kind of life come from. And here's the secret 
that we'll close on the unique thing about Christianity, okay? It's not just that Jesus lived this road first. And it's not even that he's an excellent example for how this road should be lived. It's not even that he commanded us to follow him or that he commends this as a good and full life. Jesus actually provides the power to live this road, to walk this road, because the power from his life is given to us for free. He was ransomed long before he asked us to pour out our lives for others so we can go out into the world and take risks we would otherwise not be able to take because we are totally secure in his love. He offered us the freedom of being perfectly safe in his love and grace so we can bear some costs we would otherwise not be able to bear. This whole way of life is only possible because of the riches and the safety and the love that's already ours in Jesus Christ. So this is what it looks like to journey with Jesus to the cross. We don't have to repeat what he did for us. It's done, it's finished, it's complete, it's whole. We have to receive the gift, and we have to live as if it's true, and then we have to extend that gift to more and more people around us. It's the path of downward mobility for the kingdom, following our king to glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your ransom of our lives. Thanks for setting us free through your death and resurrection. We couldn't have done it on our own. It is a gift that I wish I could have been able to articulate better. I wish we could all articulate and and explain and embody the beauty of what you did. We try to explain it. We try to believe it. We try to encourage one another to delight in you. Jesus, help us as we receive the gift of your grace and your love. Help us extend it to those around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.